Well, welcome back. As we head into hour three, it is a delight to bring back guest. He's been with us several times before, an old friend, Richard Samuelson. He is a professor of government at Hillsdale College, and he has a really important piece in the latest issue, the most recent issue of the Claremont Review of Books. It's called The Great Unwokening, Disestablishing Our New state religion. Richard, thanks for uh, thanks for being with us, and welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix. Oh, thank you for having me, and thanks for your kind words. You betcha. Uh, when we take on the issue of woke and, uh, and, 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 and how it's considered, you know, a, a new state religion, perhaps even a cult by some, you uh, you delve into you delve into the Civil Rights Act of 1964 a little bit before, and then take it from there. What had you focus on that? Why did you start with 1964 and the Civil Rights Act? Well, we sometimes forget that the Civil Rights Act marked a transformation in that it was a radical break in its collapsing of public and private for necessary reasons. Right. Classically, a liberal society in the old general sense is a separation between the public and the private, and the private is around what you can do what you want. So if you're truly a private business, you get to decide who's in the room. And for the most part, what they do, I mean, there's some health and safety codes and, of course, modern business regulation. But because of Jim Crow, which broke that rule, you know, it ruled that you have to segregate um, in various ways, right? and you have long-standing legacy of racism, the Civil Rights Act, Change that, and following upon that, because we've had it for so long, it's changing the attitude of Americans toward public and private. And the second element is that the way we've chosen to enforce it has brought along, uh, which we'll probably get to, some of the the basic policies that I think have led towards intersectionality, wokeness being powerful. That is, Andrew Breitbart said uh, politics. Culture, but if you look in an Aristotelian sense, um, culture, ideology, what we call a religion, is often downstream from the legal regime. And yep. I think we see that right. in the Civil Rights Act. Right. And so, for the audience that may not be familiar with the history of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, it's fair to say it's from that act that we got such things as affirmative action. And such things as not just ending Jim Crow, not just ending segregated water fountains, uh, segregated businesses, hotels and the like, but also the kind of thing that we were promised would not happen with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was, for lack of a better term, reverse discrimination or race preferences. Fair enough? Yes. Was it um, Humphrey yeah. who literally right. said, right. if this causes such things, I will eat the bill on the floor of the, the yeah. Senate? Yeah, I'll eat my hat. You bet. Yeah. My hat. Yeah. And, and, and so what, what effectively was an embrace of what we thought was the 14th Amendment and providing the equal protection of the laws with the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which basically barred discrimination effectively – on race, ethnicity, national origin, um, which took down those barriers where restaurants could no longer refuse service to people because of race, hotels the same, businesses the same, hiring the same, has turned into something 
quite, quite different and has really changed the world. Do you want to give us a, a, a kind of overview of some of the things that probably weren't foreseen in 1964 but now constitute the Church of the Woke right now? Yeah, well, there's a, another step. That is, how do you enforce this? Right. right the right, law, the right. superficial meaning, and the essay is the Talmudic term, the shot, which means the basic surface meaning. Right. Is that you can't discriminate um, against men against women, women against men, black against white, white against black. But the actual purpose, of course, was engine crow. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, how do you enforce it? Well, often for convenience, they use statistics. So you get disparate impact. That is, does, is the result of this policy, does it seem to uh, be unfavorable to a group? So instead of a protected class being a term for you can't discriminate based on the class of race, on the class of sex, on the class of religion, those are the class of ideas or class of uh, category, protected classes become groups of people. Right. So essentially you have an up group and a down group. And our whole civil rights enforcement bureaucracy is thanks to statistical disparate impact searches and enforcement, basically has, there must be an up and a down in all cases. So you wind up with creating groups and based on these statistical categories so you can decide who's up, who's down, and then you enforce based on that. And it ends up creating a sort of favoritism, which I want to get into as well. Let's, let's, let's narrow down this issue uh, of disparate impact for a moment, which is, which is what the 1964 Civil Rights uh, Act led to. You correct me any time I get, get, get this wrong, Richard. But effectively, uh, an example might be, let's say, um, Harvard, just to take one example. Let's say Harvard notes that in a 13% of the population in America is African-American, but let's say only 2 or 3% of applicants to Harvard who are African-American get admitted, that's considered a disparate impact. It doesn't represent what you would think it should, i.e. something closer to 13%. Hence, the judgment becomes there must be something wrong, not with those applicants, but with Harvard, right? So Harvard is right. now seen ipso facto as discriminatory because the 3% it allows in or it brings in under its standards don't comport with some norm that exists outside of Harvard. Fair enough? Yeah, and the second element is institutions like Harvard bring in a bureaucracy that right. thinks that way. Right, right. Right. So then, all right, that, that is right. That's the second shoe that lands. And then Harvard decides to do exactly what you said. It brings in officials, pays them an awful lot of money, human resources, admissions counselors, a whole series of race trainings and a revamping probably of their admissions processes and the way that they identify who they're going to let in, which has the effect of then changing, uh, changing the composition, not just of Harvard, but there isn't a situation where everyone's a winner because it will fall on other ethnic groups who were traditionally discriminated against, who now no longer can get in by dint of the same merits they used to get in on. Particularly, I think it would be fair to say Asians and Jews, right? Yeah, well, yes. And what happens is, right, um, they look at the statistics, and I think the number is that you need... Uh, one scholar found out to have the same average chance of getting in, an Asian student student needs 425 points higher on right. the SATs. Right. Not to guarantee, but an average chance, the same the same shot, the same percentage chance of getting in. And that's a huge disparity. We're not talking a small sum on the scale. And one thing they do, they have a personality test, and lo and behold, 
for some reason, Asians tend to score lower on the personality score, right? That should be a disparate impact. You have a, you have a test, a personality test, which is very subjective, and it seems to score one particular group lower. And remember, Ibram Kendi, the, you know, the, uh, the preacher of the gospel of woke, um, I'll put it that way, he, um, he says if there's fiscal impact, it must be an evidence of discrimination. The but other... what they do is they... Yeah, go sorry. ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Um, the, the other side, so what, what happens, of course, is they have to say, what do you do when two groups that are protected classes collide? And that's where you get intersectionality. Intersectionality began as a legal theory, saying, well, you know, I could be in more than one group. I could be both, say, black and a lesbian, and then I have two yeah. two boxes. Two plus in that, factors, right? right. Right. But then the, the, the bureaucrats and others get at it and it becomes a formula. Who has more points? They're the down group. Who has fewer points? They're the up group. And so who do you help? The one with more points. That's intersectionality. That's its appeal in the bureaucracy, in the DEI, or DIE bureaucracy, perhaps, as we may jokingly call it. And and Richard, if it, we're going to go to break, and I'll pick up on this if I can when we come back, uh, if you agree, the whole point is of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which was what Martin Luther King Jr. did his march on Washington the year before, his famous I Have a Dream speech and march in Washington the year before. It was a march to push for that legislation, the point of which was to get us beyond a society that thinks in racial terms. The whole purpose was for us to become, for to use an overworn term at this point, a, a little bit more, if not completely or as close as completely as possible, to be a colorblind society where we don't take race into account anymore. That was the purpose of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Giving the history of it since then and the rendering you're giving us in your piece and on this show is that we have become, as a result, however, much more racially conscious than ever before. Let's pick up on that when we come back. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Professor Richard Samuelson. And you can uh, you can find his most recent piece at the Claremont Review of Books, The Great Unwokening. He is a professor of government at Hillsdale College, of course. No surprise there. And he and I will be right back. Portions of the show are brought to you by my great friends at Y-Refi. If you are looking for a remarkable investment opportunity, do please check them out. Y-Refi is a due diligence approved firm, as I say, run by really great people. They're investors who do well by doing good for others. And you can be a part of that, too. What they're offering is a fixed, no-load interest rate, up to 10.25% return for investors, all on a secure and collateralized portfolio. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y-R-E-F-Y.com. Or give them a call at 855-316-3087. 855-316-3087. Richard Samuelson is our guest. He has an essay in the current issue of the Claremont Review of Books, The Great Unwokening. And we're talking about Civil Rights Act of 1964 and its perversions ever since. Richard, um, right before the break, I was making the point that the ethos behind the 1964 Civil Rights Act was to get us to think less and less about race, to make decisions less and less about race, ethnicity, other immutable characteristics. We end up at a place with what we were talking about in the implementation of the 1964 Civil Rights Act 
to, well, it was said well by a scholar you mentioned. You mentioned Ibram Kendi, Ibram X. Kendi, a professor at Boston University. And he says quite clearly in his book this, exactly this. The only remedy to racist discrimination is anti-racist discrimination. The only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. So they're not even really hiding it anymore. They realize that to get to what they believe, the woke people of the woke church, to get to what they believe is some form of, I don't know, equality or utopian equality, it's going to include discrimination against other people. Quite a perversion. Do I have that about right? Yeah, I mean, to be slightly glib about it, right, they've gone to, uh, from segregation today, segregation tomorrow, yeah. segregation forever, right. Right. to uh, discrimination today, right. discrimination tomorrow, discrimination forever. Right. That's George Wallace, by the way, for those who are who are who, who have missed some of my monologues on this. I think that's exactly what I thought of when I heard Ibram Kendi. And that's quite a reversal from what the vision of the 64 Civil Rights Act was. So now it's quite clear. And we saw this, I guess, most most profoundly in the Bakke case, circa 1977, 1978. That's what made this a national a national um, uh, cause celeb, I suppose, where you had a student at a medical school, was it UC Davis, Bakke, uh, who was denied entrance into the medical school because while his scores uh, were good, he saw people of other races getting in uh, with scores that were less good than his, which weren't as good as his, and he was denied admission. That's how it played out, right? Yeah, that's exactly how it plays. And the key to that case is justification is you can't have quotas. Right. However, they said, you know, and it's not unreasonable from the outside. It's reasonable to say you want to have some kind of diversity. You don't want all your students from the exact same town, basically, or something like that. But this word diversity, instead of saying, okay, if they're real close, we give a little help, diversity became, the effects are reified, and it's kind of now diversity is a mantra. We say it over and over again. It's become a religious term in the discourse. We want diversity, and diversity does, as we all know, doesn't mean diversity of political points of view or even religious points of view. Diversity means diversity of um, your racial categories. What protected classes do you belong to? And also, in some ways, diversity doesn't mean that if you're a member of one of those protected classes, if you, say, have the political ideas of Clarence Thomas, you don't count. Diversity means you have to be the right kind of person in those groups. The odd thing about this is when you think about the groups that thrive under these kinds of regimes or in this church, it does end up creating bakis of other groups, not just whites. I was alluding earlier to the fact that currently a group of Asian students is suing Harvard over this based on some of the things you said as well, the way they they play around with their personality scores so as to yield less Asians at Harvard and more of other minorities. But if you think about the claims of diversity, wouldn't an institution dedicated to diversity want – I mean, if you add Asian Americans and Jewish Americans together, you're still less than the percent in America that constitute African Americans. Why is the diversity game, why is the diversity rule only based on one or two preferred races? Right. Well, historically, right, in some ways it's very strange. Diversity doesn't mean – um, people who have been previously excluded in general, okay. right? Even though they may be belong to certain classes, 
it's really focusing on African Americans now, also Hispanic Americans, a, a, a category that did not exist when the Civil Rights Act passed. Good point. Right. right. Um, that's very, very important. Also, we've had a massive increase in immigration. Yeah, I want to get to that, too. Yep. People of Asian descent right. in 1964. Right. Um, and so that's where the bureaucracy is, because they give them a score. Who gets more points? Asians are seen as, quote, white adjacent, a term that's actually sometimes used, I guess. Yep. And um, so they don't really count. Right? Just as Jews don't really count. Jews are considered white now. Yep. Right. Um, and um, so that, that that's why they focus that way. And so there's one other thing here in the large, larger public sector, and that's the, um, the Griggs case, the Griggs recent Palace case, in which they said if you have a test for a job and it has a disparate impact, the test is guilty until proven innocent. That is, you have to prove that this is necessary for the job. Right. So hence, if, if a physical test favors male men over women for firefighting, you have to prove that the qualification is necessary. And there's been some push to you know, change the standards, not get rid of them entirely uh, for that reason. And so the push for affirmative action in hiring and the push for university degrees is you can use a university degree. But you can't use a test of some kind, which may have a disparate impact. So when you think about that and you think about the question I was posing right before the break, if the point of 64 Civil Rights Act was to get us – to think less about race, to get us beyond race in America, um, we ended up in this really ironic thing where we care more about race than probably any time since 1964. It seems like it seems like we have made a fetish of race when we were with the with the very tools we were using to eliminate the fetish of race. Is that fair? Yeah, that's the irony, right? I think that's how something you can see in you know, my work in history. This is something I learned for saying a lot on John Adams. You see how your laws shape character, shape ideology, shape mores of a people in many ways. It's a common pattern. Mm -hmm. And in this case, that's why the word diversity is so interesting. It yep. wasn't really on the map. But now we talk about it all the time. The law put it in, the judge put it into our culture, and now it's taking on this meaning in the woke religion. And a perverse meaning in a sense, too, isn't it? Because it's diversity based on the most crude of characteristics, something that has nothing to do with an individual's choice. It's diversity based on accident or blessing of birth, however you want to categorize it. It's, it's diversity based on birth that has nothing to do really with the measurements, abilities, and contributions of the most subtle things about you as a human being, which is the operations of your mind. I wonder if you might address that when we come back on the other side of this break, Richard. Thank you. I'm Seth Liebson. He is Richard Samuelson, professor at Hillsdale, and his piece we're discussing in the current issue of the Claremont Review of Books is The Great Unawakening, Disestablishing Our New State Religion. Richard and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Richard Samuelson is our guest, professor at Hillsdale. His piece, The Great Unwokening, and the current issue of the Claremont Review of Books. Richard, this, this issue of diversity, which is the quest of so much in the elite, in academia, certainly in the business community and industry as well, it's an odd thing. It's diversity based on the most crude characteristic of a human being, that is to say something over which they have zero responsibility for or really even to – at the elimination and expense 
of um, everything a human being does have um, access and responsibility for. That is to say, their abilities, their thinking, their articulate, uh, their artic- uh, the ability to articulate a thought, a point of view, a discussion issue. It's, it's a very, very odd and crude thing to claim that we're just going to grab people based on the color of their skin or where they're born, knowing almost nothing else about them. That's what matters. Fair enough? Yeah, it's it's really it's really strange from a historical perspective. It's very, I mean, you can see it happening, and it's unfortunate. It's terrible in many, in so many ways. It's really perverse. They give you examples of perversity, right? Some of this is fear of lawsuits, and some of it is focused on such basic superficial characteristics. It's not even just you want people who have you know different points of view, who have different ways of reasoning, right? Um, different, generally different backgrounds. Uh, what they want is to be able to check boxes. So a significant portion of the African-American students or black students are not really the students that 64 Act was designed to help, or the children, grandchildren, right? They're not the people who are in the, in the United States during slavery and Jim Crow. You have an increasing percentage of Americans who, whose parents came from the Caribbean or Africa, like Barack Obama and Kamala Harris, interestingly, right? and a significant portion of affirmative action at elite universities and elite businesses. Right? They get to check the black or African box, not for the people we were actually in 1964, but for people who are part of immigrant communities. And immigrants, you have the same trajectory in terms of integration and moving up in American society as previous waves of immigrants. There have been occasional protests, which the powers that be shut up right away on campus when the, the, the African-American students say, hey, wait a second. You're, you're helping the wrong people. Yeah. Right? But the bureaucrats, they don't care. Right. They just want to be able to say, see, we have X percent of black students, as right. we define it. Right. You can't complicate the categories. That's right. That's, exa- that's, that's exactly right. And I think at the end of this experiment, I don't know if there's going to be an end to it. Perhaps the Supreme Court case with Harvard will help lead to it. But at the end of this experiment, Richard, do you get the sense that we're going to look back and say, in our efforts to uh, deracialize, destigmatize, uh, make kinder the United States of America, make less racist the United States of America, you think we're going to look back and say, my God, what did we do? We re-racialized society. We created more racial resentment rather than less. We created uh, the phrase uh, of art, invidious racial animus, when we were trying to eliminate it. I think that's a fair yeah, point. I think that's that's very just very unfortunate, right? Um, if you want to get people not to focus on race, the best way to do it is not to focus on race. Right. When every time you have to step through a box, so to speak, you have to get a promotion, apply for college, etc., like make a movie, right? You see that there's a self-conscious effort. To what race are the people in front of me? You're training people to think racially. And the really one really bad side effect is it's just no one wants to be the bad guy all the time because in the intersexual hierarchy, white men, whites in general, white men are the only category that's always the bad guy. And no one wants to be the bad guy all the time. So the result of it, perversely, is you're actually fostering a recrudescence of white nationalism, perhaps. Because the only thing, I, people saying, okay, fine, I'm, a, I, I, I'm the out group, therefore that's fine, that's who I am. And I worry there's a turn in that direction. 
if we don't cut this crap out, part of my face, I say that on the air. No, it's Ooh. okay. You can use that word. It deserves it because this was a short segment. I'm going to do a longer one. I'm going to use a different word um, that might have uh, once upon a time was maybe even more poignant. I, I think we've so diluted it now. But, you know, when you take um, – when you, I'm looking at your essay in, in the Claremont Review of Books. It has some Yiddish terminology in it. I have to take a quick break. <laughs> when we come back, I want to make the point, Richard, or see if you agree with the point I'm making, that there's a very odd odor or stench about using skin color to determine – or any immutable characteristic – to determine a benefit or a privilege – or a right, and that odor is redolent of the 1930s and not America. And I'm wondering if we might talk about that when we come back. I'm Seth Liebson. He's Richard Samuelson. As we go to break, I'll put in a word for our sponsors at Balance of Nature. Great product. I take it every single day, 100% natural, not one thing added to it, not any sugars or sweeteners or colors. Boost your immunity, boost your health. Boost your energy with pure, potent plant power. Balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Richard Samuelson is our guest, professor at Hillsdale College. He has a uh, very important piece at the Claremont Review of Books, The Great Unwokening. Richard, if I said that too strong, let me double down. What I said right before, too strongly right before the break, let me double down on it. When the Bakke case arose in the 70s, um, there was an interesting amicus brief on behalf of Alan Bakke, on behalf of uh, the plaintiff, written by the American Jewish Committee. Um, and the reason they got involved is once upon a time in this country, uh, the notion that race determines thinking, that race determines uh, what should be a privilege or uh, access to uh, benefits of any kind in the private or public sphere, uh, was seemed to have come from a legacy that we thought was put aside forever at Nuremberg. Uh, that's why some of us in the Jewish community react so strongly to this kind of uh, racial discrimination nonsense in the name of the woke religion. Is that putting it too strongly? No, I mean, as I use the example I use in the essay, right? Just how crazy it is. See how this works, right? You could, it's, it's plausible, not like it's possible. The great grandson of a Nazi who fled to Argentina right. has moved to the United States. He would get an affirmative action button the great-granddaughter of Jews who were killed by that guy's great-grandparents would not, right? right? It's Meshuganah, as we say in Yiddish, yep, right? right? It's crazy, right? But it's not just that. The way this has become kind of an established religion, the legal instruments make it such a strong part of our culture that you have to be part of the elite group. You have to subscribe to it. Jewish civil rights organizations seem more concerned with other rights questions, not that they may not may or may not be serious, but if you're a Jewish civil rights organization, your concern is supposed to be, are Jews being mistreated? And we know, unfortunately, there's been a spike in anti-Semitic hate crime. Right. right? But the civil right, they see themselves as civil rights groups first and Jewish groups second. That's another impact of the way this is done. That is, if every civil rights case is Jim Crow, then the, and the question is who's up, who's down, Jews have done fairly well in the United States. They're always considered an up group, and someone else is always a down group. So if you're a civil rights group, 
Jews are not on your radar as a group that's being singled out. And that misses unfortunate, a very unfortunate turn. So, yeah, they're, they're, that's one of the many ways um, there, there's an unfortunate bench in, in what's going on. Richard, there's, there's, there's a edifice or an artifice, I'm not sure, some kind of fist here that, 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 that keeps this regime going, this uh, racial preference regime going, this woke regime going, where we count by race and consider race in a society that worked 50 years ago so hard to get rid of it, isn't it? And it's, it's, it's a conceit of systemic racism, right? So the, the, the ongoing justification that your universities and industries that, that, that do make a fetish of racial uh, discrimination or racial affirmative action, racial preferences, however you want to pitch it, the way they do it is they can't point to present actual discrimination at these places. Harvard can't actually admit to itself that it's a racist institution and hasn't been one in, gosh, at least 40 or 50 years, perhaps. Same with almost any organization. So what we now say is we create this artificial construct, don't we, that we are a systemically racist society. We are nowhere thus as a systemically racist society within eyeshot or eyesight or earshot of ever ending this diversity game, right? Yeah, well, the old line, there's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program. Right, right. I mean, the right. of action tends to be temporary. But there's a second element, which actually, ironically, there's some truth in that, right? Yeah. If you are, say, a full standard deviation or two behind other students at Harvard, you're not going to admit to yourself, they only admitted me because of my race. Right. You're going to say they're discriminating against me when you have struggle in school. But you're struggling in school because they've admitted someone who probably shouldn't be there, hence the mid smash effect. I assume you've probably spoken about uh, in your, on your program sure, before. Sure, sure. Um, but I think the psychological impact is you blame racism rather than saying, you know, the school did me a bad turn by bringing me to campus. What we get in that era is something Shelby Steele once wrote about called the permanent stigma of questionable uh, competence, right? Ending up doing misfavors to the very people we're trying to help in society because it begs the question, did they get there by dint of their ability or by dint of something they had nothing to do with? Fair enough? Yeah, and precisely because we can't ask that, yep. it strengthens the discussion of the whole woke ideology. Right. That's the alternative discussion you have. That's exactly right. So the school you teach at, this is, I love this story, the school you teach at, Hillsdale, they, they don't get involved in any of this. And the reason they are so new and not getting involved in any of this is they say what? We're not going to have anything to do with the government whatsoever, right? So students don't have to fill out those silly boxes at Hillsdale, do they? Nope, that's exactly right. Um, they get no government funds, and that was decided a long time ago by litigation, if I remember the story correctly. That means they can't even have students with government-backed student loans. That's right. That's right. So at the end of the day then, Richard, um, we're talking to Richard Samuelson. At the end of the day, how much longer do you think this goes on? How much more silliness are we going to have to put up with? Uh, in certain guises, um, Justice O'Connor, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, has predicted we might end some of these things uh, maybe a decade hence from now. I got to tell you, looking at it, listening to the Ibram Kendis as being much more persuasive in our culture and our society than your, I don't know, your Shelby Steels, if you want. Uh, it seems to me we're nowhere near a horizon of getting rid of this counting by race nonsense. 
worries me is this whole religion as we're calling it, yep. has become yep. so powerful. Yep. If you have these stories about elite prep schools and elite public high schools, that how important this is to the way they're teaching their students. So you're creating a ruling class that has internalized this, that, that they might have a question here or there, but you realize the whole thing is based on an error is a problem. But there's another element, and this is, this is a, another part of, of the essay, that Madison said that you, you extend the sphere Yep. In the Republic, right. we have more factions. Right. And we have more and more and more protected classes. And intersectionality gives you a scoring system so they don't actually conflict. You have a binary. Right. But in practice, they do. And that is actually causing complications. I think the working class gets it. This is why, even in progressive California, they did not vote to bring affirmative action That's back. Right. That's right. That's right. They, they, they doubled down on the California Civil Rights Initiative, which was... Uh, some of the early work of which was done by uh, Larry Arn and Claremont and then completed by uh, people like Ward Connerly, if my history on that, uh, if my if my memory serves on the history of that. Well, Richard, thanks for spending uh, your time with us. Thanks for this essay and uh, thanks for your scholarship generally, as always, sir. Well, thank you so much, Seth. Absolutely. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll come back with I'll come back with a concluding thought. Richard has to go. But his piece, The Great Unwokening Claremont Review of Books, Disestablishing our new state religion. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. Really very much appreciated. I will um I will close uh with a thought I've been um I've been using a lot lately in some of my stump speeches um and it's from uh, Thurgood Marshall. He was the first black Supreme Court justice. Uh, but before he was on the Supreme Court, he was famously arguing in front of the Supreme Court. He was uh, one of the attorneys in the famous 1954 Brown versus Board of Education case, which led to the desegregation of our schools. In that legal brief that Thurgood Marshall wrote to the Supreme Court, 1954, probably wrote it the year before, 1953, Thurgood Marshall wrote, distinctions by race are so evil, so arbitrary and so invidious that a state committed to the equal protection of the laws shall not invoke them any time in any public sphere. Uh, civil rights activists and those committed to equality would have cheered that sentiment then and did, just as they would have cheered the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the sentiments within it to make us a more equal society, a more colorblind society, where we were to hopefully end the notion that race in this country, or really anywhere, matters at all. What an irony of history that these many years and decades hence, we have, because of the left and because of the Church of the Woke, created such a country where we have never been more racially conscious in our lifetimes. Perhaps more racially conscious than even 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was passed. What a shame. What a shame. And what an absurdity when you think of everything we fought and fought for to get us beyond race. There is one key to getting beyond race, and that's getting beyond race. Focusing on it, making a fetish of it, making a conceit of it will only divide us further. That's where you get the word invidious. We are making invidious racism in this country more practical and more practiced. Again, what a shame.
God bless you all. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Leapson. Class dismissed.